Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Fear. Ah. <laughs> Panic. Ah. Ah. It's White House. It's, it's on fire. It's, it's all bad. It's all bad. <laughs> Everybody panic. Oh, Jesus. This could be a long discussion in this one. <laughs> it's very interested to have it, but we're talking about the Woodward book. I'm talking about the Woodward book that just came out today, which we're going to talk about today. Titled Fear. Titled Fear. Why I screamed fear at the beginning, in <laughs> case you didn't know. Uh, welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, uh, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, who is back from his study abroad session. <laughs> Hello, my friend. Wiener <laughs> <laughs> Schnitzel. How was, how was Germany? It was great. Yeah. It was fantastic. Good food, good wine, good beer. It was good. And you were speaking at a, a you were uh, brought in to speak at a conference on nationalism. Yeah, this is impressive yeah, about religion and nationalism. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, they flew me business class. They think I'm special. They 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 don't understand. You you are special. Phil. How was it oh, leading thanks. one of those right wing rallies? It had to be kind of fun <laughs> and exhilarating. It was really empowering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, before we get started, standard stuff. If you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. Uh, we are just Barstool Politics. The podcast you can find on SoundCloud and Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Definitely on iTunes. That's where most of you guys are coming from. So uh, review us through there. Uh, like us on there. Share us through there. Um, that helps us a lot. Uh, as we've been talking about um, for several weeks now, uh, if you guys haven't tried it yet, definitely checked out, uh, check out Predict It, um, which is a pretty much a stock market for politics, a real money political prediction market. Uh, our listeners, if you open an account with them, uh, they will match your deposit up to $20. So deposit $20 into your account, and they will match it up to $20. 40 whole dollars yeah. to bet on political events, which there are, again, so many to bet on now. Even if you are a bad investor and you lose a chunk of your money, you're still going to come out ahead. terrible investor. I've <laughs> lost almost all of my monies, I think. Um but yeah, de definitely check it out. Like I said, twenty dollars, and then you will get twenty dollars in free money. To yeah, sorry, Phil, you were gonna say something. No, I was. I was gonna say, tell them the link. Oh yeah, yeah, because that's what I said. Um, for our listeners specifically, if you want that twenty dollars that I alluded to earlier and didn't give you a way to get it. Um, use our uh, specific promo link. So you go to predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Uh, again, it's predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. And that will give you your free money when you deposit something in there. 
Now, while Nick is losing lots of money on predicted, yep. I am not because <laughs> I invested. And this is a question for Phil, my Texas buddy here. So I bought. I uh, the Ted Cruz is running against uh, what's the Democrat's name? I can't think of it now. Uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke. Yes, or Beto uh, O'Rourke. Beto. Yeah, yeah, I bought a bunch of stock in him winning, and it's like through the roof now. I bought I it at twenty eight. It's up to uh, thirty eight cents. So I've made ten cents a share on it. Do you think a Democrat could truly win? in texas in the senate is that is that going to happen that's funny <laughs> you bought it 28 i have to go back to that first yes i bought it 28 oh, it's up to it's... i bought it 31 i bought it and i thought i was in on the head you were ahead of me uh you know i this is an example of where these markets are actually probably pretty good i just pulled it up and and looked and they've got it at if you wanted to buy in right now you said 38 cents yeah. Two to one, I say yeah. Cruz still wins, but I think there's a there's a decent chance sure. that that O'Rourke actually pulls it off. And so he's, I, he's yeah, getting, I mean, it's, it's this seems pretty accurate to me. Two to one, he's getting some national attention as well and free advertising. And uh, Ted Cruz has got to be a little worried. Yeah, O'Rourke's raised tons of money too. So I I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be close. I mean, I, I it'll be closer than it should be sure. for an incumbent for Republican in Texas, and so that's where you get all the the. You know the Trump effect and everything. I don't. I don't know if it's enough to put him over the top, but I. It's. It's. It's certainly not an impossibility. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm gonna bet on good old Teddy just uh, for some friendly competition. <laughs> that's what we what, need to do. What's the. Uh, what. What's the price at which you would say I'm getting out because this is too. This is. This is worth selling at this point. If it hits fifty cents, I'm selling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm out. Because it seems like you guys. I. I really think the Republican. I think Ted Cruz wins this. But it's fascinating how close it is. Yep. And it again, we've talked about this. This is like uh, the NCAA tournament and politics all wrapped together. So if you're a political junkie, predicted is for you. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, Super you know, fun. Yeah, so, uh, low low amounts, too. So, uh, Woodward? Yeah, yeah Woodward. So dive let's, in. Let's do it. All right. So Bob Woodward's book was officially released on Tuesday. It paints a devastating picture of the president. The book alleges his staff believes he's an idiot and that much of their time is spent trying to prevent him from his worst impulses. If the claims in the book are true, and we must remember, this is Bob Woodward, Nick. Bob Woodward. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Communist. Guy took down Nixon. <laughs> it forces us to grapple with some of the some deeply troubling questions that get to the very core of who is running the government and what would happen if the country faced a real crisis. And let's not forget the anonymous New York Times op-ed that broke just minutes before we recorded last week, an op-ed that told a similar story about Trump's staff actively trying to thwart the president. We briefly hit on these topics last week, yet their significance demands some additional deep reflection that only we three idiots can provide. <laughs> well, yes. that's a nugget of truth right. in there. Bob Woodard has covered eight presidents. Uh, he stated yesterday, yesterday on NBC that, quote, I've never seen an instance when the president is so detached from reality of what is going on. This has not been treated seriously enough. Some of the things that Trump did and does jeopardize real national security. Uh, Trump has gone on the offensive this week, suggesting that Woodward's book is a joke, nothing but fiction, and that the quotes and stories are all made up. I'm not sure that attack works with someone as credible as Bob Woodward. Phil, something's afoot in the Trump administration. This peek behind the curtain reveals troubling details. Was there enough sausage in Germany to calm your nerves? <laughs> <laughs> that was a long intro. <laughs> I... um. <laughs> I don't really know what to make of the Woodward. I mean, I, so I, I don't, I don't know what to make of the Woodward book in, in this sense. Um, 
it is certainly like Bob Woodward is of a different category than the Omarosa book, right? Or the fire and fury book or whatever. Um, Woodward has a long history of writing about presidents critically, right? And, and on both sides, right? Yeah. He wrote, he obviously was involved in, in, um, bringing down Nixon, but also wrote a number of books, uh, on, uh, on all a variety of presidents yeah. over the years. Um, and he is credible. So in that sense, I think this is this is hugely significant. In another sense, I don't know that we're actually learning anything all that surprising by this. Um, I, I mean, I think it, it is significant because it adds to the pile, right? There's all of this evidence, even if you don't like Omarosa, right? Even if you think the Fire and Fury book is is crap, as you start to throw Bob Woodward on there and then this this op-ed letter, it's more and more evidence that this that that this is deeply dysfunctional what's what's going on um (laughs) i i go back and forth between thinking this is really worrisome and thinking i don't am i sleeping worse than i was before this book came out i don't know that it's like awakened in me additional concern having said that there are stories in this book that are beyond the crazy that we've come to expect right the story that i i mean so there are some that are concerning the the fact that trump wanted to assassinate assad is big but the fact the story about how trump believes that the ghosts of previous presidents haunt the oval office and so trump wouldn't for for months go into the oval office alone that he would sit outside the door of the oval office until someone else arrived to go in first <laughs> That if that if that's the sort of thing that if it were someone other than Bob Woodward reporting it, I sure. would just I, like I would think there's a possibility that's true, but I'm going to assume it's not. But that's that's a level a whole different level of insanity. Sure, this is you've Nick. You've shared the philosophy that these books are revealing, but we kind of already know the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I I I like you said, it's this kind of increasing body body of evidence that he's a bit of a loon which again we we knew from day one while i think that woodward is a, a a credible source in in most respects at the same time this stuff isn't really it's not teaching us anything like there's nothing here that's actionable that we can do something about it's just just kind of throwing more gas onto a fire that's already raging at this point and i i don't i i from what i understand there's there's nothing there of substance that anyone has found as of yet who has read the book um so it doesn't there's no imperative for me to read it or anyone else to read it in my opinion it's if you're going to do something about trump and you don't like the way that he acts or you think he's unfit for office then you need to find real evidence of it and whether that comes from the Mueller investigation or some other source this is not something that we need to continuously do and feed that that just that salacious kind of need for these tidbits. This raises an interesting question. You know, when where is that line? When you know, you talked about when do we take action? When do we say, yeah, this is you know, it, it it's odd that he thinks the White House is haunted, but I don't think, I think you should necessarily impeach somebody for that. You know, when you're talking about assassinating Assad or when you talk about a number of officials in the White House who are actively trying to prevent the president from getting us into World War Three, at at what point do we say, no, we've maybe drifted into territory where there should be some action taken, whether that's impeachment or the 25th Amendment? I mean, have we 
do these stories get us closer to that? I mean, I would say the biggest thing that comes out of this, and realistically, it doesn't even come out of this. It's these unelected officials who are essentially running the executive mm -hmm. branch and keeping him, you know, at bay again from his his uh, you know his own yeah. demons. Sure. Um, again, that's not something that this book is going to change, or something that we didn't know already. That's something that needs to be an institutional thing that is changed with the levers of government I, this isn't doing anything this is just telling me that this is happening sure. and no one is doing anything about it sure that has the ability to do something about it mainly in the legislature and yeah the executive well, branch yeah exactly or mike pence or somebody phil you were gonna i um i i think it might take us a little closer to that point of saying this enough is enough in the sense of i, I mean i'm just this is just as i'm I haven't necessarily thought through this. This is just kind of what's going through my head now. It seems like some of the Woodward, and I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but some of the excerpts that I've read, some of the things that people have talked about, it seems to be painting a little bit different of a picture. Some of the other presentations of Trump as crazy are just that he's unorthodox, right? He does things differently. He doesn't necessarily follow the rules. Some of the stories from the Woodward book paint a picture of a person who might be mentally not incapable of being president right yes. that's an, that's a different yeah. category than eclectic odd uh right. we've had odd presidents we've had vindictive presidents we've had angry presidents uh most yeah. of them in yes, fact right <laughs> um yeah yeah and so I, I to that extent i think it could further the i mean again this is we've talked a lot or we've talked in previous episodes about you know, the evidence against or the evidence in support of the idea that collusion occurred. Um, and we get all of these little pebbles, right? And each one feels like a little pebble. But if you look at the big pile, there's a big ass pile of evidence that yeah. says that collusion occurred. Th this seems to fall in that argument as well, that if there if you're looking for evidence that maybe Trump is not fit for the presidency, there's all these little bits, little, you know, little pebbles of evidence that support that. And this is a bigger pebble, right? It's Woodward. It's lots of stories. It's backed up. He, you know, he has records and evidence and interviews and all of that stuff. So this is, you know, there's lots of pebbles and this is more, you know, a sizable rock that has been thrown on the pile. But um, I don't know that this is in and of itself enough, but I think it continues to add to it continues to change the, the cumulative nature of all of these stories is that I think it inevitably changes public perceptions. His approval numbers, mm -hmm. the polls that have come out this week, are they've dipped, right? They're a little yeah. bit lower than they, they were hovering at 40% for a long time, and they've dipped in a number down into the low 30s. And so I, I think it, it matters. I think it matters in, in the longer term. I, I would go a step further. I don't think it's, it's a, a pebble or a bigger rock. I think we've reached a point with the Woodward book where Indiana Jones, when that big boulder is rolling down after him, I yeah. think that's what this is. Yeah. I, I think we've, we've, tri we've moved to a new point where we can say we've learned enough where something should be done. I, I, I think yeah. I, he is not capable of being president. They're hiding things from him. So the New York Times right. op-ed last week came out and said we are actively trying to prevent his worst impulses. Uh, the, and, the, the Woodward book book reinforces this you know the story we talked about last week with cohen taking not not cohen 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 yes <laughs> taking the the free trade uh, agreement that was going to revoke the trade agreement with south korea off his desk in you know the book starts with saying that yes that happened 
But that wasn't the only thing. So uh, they talked about slow walking things, and they said for every time that they took something off of Trump's desk, nine or ten times what they would do is not give him something, slow walk something, saying uh, this has to be vetted more. We need more legal clearance. That happened ten times more frequently than taking papers from his desk. It felt like we were walking along the edge of the cliff perpetually. I mean, so this suggests to me that they're doing a lot of things to say let's not even let him make a decision. Which means right. that he's not capable of being president, right? And we've got an administrative coup d'état going on right now. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, the, there are all sorts of stories about uh, you know the the um, I mean another example of the of the paper being taken off of his desk was the sig the the declaration ending U.S. South Korean yes. um, you know, military ties. Um, the 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 order to assassinate Assad was an example in which Mattis basically stopped that from happening. Um, there are stories in the book about how people will just tell the president next week we'll do that, right? <laughs> yes. say, in the hopes that he'll move on or forget. Yeah, I mean he's not he's not governing, right? It's like all these people around him are playing defense, trying to prevent him from governing. Right. I, it's a hard that this is a hard thing for me, right? Because he was elected, right? He was the person who was elected, and he was elected on what I think are crazy policies, but that's what he was elected on, right? Mm -hmm. These sorts of things are the things that people got excited about. And so I'm torn between like, you know, the idea of, hey, he's pursuing these and people are like, the people around him are actively intervening to stop it from happening. That is in some ways a nice story to me, but I, I, I don't know, should we be concerned? I mean, for a variety of reasons, we should be concerned that the people around him are stopping policy from from being enacted. But there's this part of me that struggles with like the democracy aspect yes. of this. There's a difference between Trump coming into office and saying, "I'm going to delegate to my generals. I'm going to delegate to my. I'm going to surround myself with the best people, and I'm going to empower them." That's different from what's happening here, where the people around him, even if they are good people, are hiding things from him. But but. The question for me is, are they hiding them from him because they think it's bad policy? Which I I agree, it's bad policy, but he was elected, he's the president, Mm -hmm. right? I may not like the policy, but he's the president. Or are they hiding it from him because they think that he's not mentally sound, right? In in which case, he can't make these decisions. So if they are hiding these papers because they think it's bad policy versus they think he's not capable of making decisions, so he's not of sound mind to make this decision— in my mind, there's an important distinction there, right? I, as much as I don't like what Trump is doing, the idea that people around him are just slow walking stuff because they don't like his policy is somehow more problematic sure. to me than if they're doing it because they think he's not like he's he's you know not able to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that point, if that's the case and you do think he is not fit or he's incapable of making sound rational decisions it is your duty as part as that as part of that administration to say it immediately and to start some sort of process to remove him from the position it uh, right now it just seems like you're it, it you, like you said it, they just don't agree with the policy and that's you can't have an unelected official in that branch of government that is not accountable to anyone who who's making sure that type of choice it's ridiculous in some ways, A is leading leading to B, right? So they they're saying he is the, the fact that he would make this decision, whether it's South Korean trade deal or whatever the issue was, 
it suggests that he's not capable of making a sound decision. So we're not going to let him make that decision. With the assassination of Assad, you know, uh, Mattis says, okay, okay, sounds good. Mr. President will look into it. And then immediately pulls away and says to his aide, we're not going to do that. Uh, that, That is, that's deeply, deeply troubling if a good policy decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is where I, I, it's hard for me because I, I think deciding to assassinate Assad is, you know, anyway, there's lots of these policies that I think are very problematic. But it's one of those where Trump, the Trump administration sets precedents, right? And so if mm-hmm. if if you are okay with military leaders or the head of the Pentagon essentially overruling the president's decision on military issues, then are you going to be okay with that when it's you know, I, you know, the, the next president, when it's somebody who you agree with and, and it's not, you wouldn't be, I mean, this is where, if our system, if, if our goddamn system worked right, (laughs) right, it wouldn't be up to those people around Trump to prevent this stuff. It would be up to Congress to do it. And if Mm. Congress would actually do it, then this, this would be less of an issue, but yeah, so this anyway. is Congress's fault more than anything. <laughs> That's what I'm. I mean, they, I, I'm reminded of Truman and MacArthur and the Korean War. I mean, all of this where you know you had a general disobeying the president's order. This was a historic event where he gets fired because if you're not going to implement the order of the president, you're gone. You know, the buck stops with the president. And what? here we've got multiple individuals throughout the administration saying he's really dangerous. We can't do this. Uh, Yeah. What if it's the other way? What if it's, it's, I mean, this is where, you know, playing devil's advocate. What if instead of the president saying we should assassinate Assad and the military saying that's a bad idea? What if it's the other way? What if the president is saying, no, we're not going to assassinate Assad and the the military is saying, no, that's essential. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's so anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm deeply torn by all of this because I do, I don't think that I think he is damaging American institutions. I think he's damaging American reputation abroad. I think he's implementing harmful policies, but I don't I'm deeply uncomfortable with the this sort of agreed upon like all of these unelected people will just do their own thing to prevent it from happening. I'm like grateful and deeply disturbed by it at the same time. And we are lucky that there's been no legitimate crisis yet. I mean, there have been little small problems, but we haven't. You know, we're taping during the week of 9-11, you know, anniversary of 9-11. If there's another terrorist attack, it then comes to the president to make an important decision. What happens then? Is Trump part of these decisions? Or are, does Mattis and Kelly, are, are the are the generals making those calls? I, I don't know. I, th- I think that's when it's increasingly dangerous, uh, that both were relying on a president as well as an administration that doesn't trust that president. I kind of wonder what the historical precedence of this kind of behavior is within administrations. Because, I, I mean, I don't think anyone is under, it was working under the assumption that after 9-11, George Bush was in charge of the major military decisions that were happening. Oh, Dick with, Cheney was. Um, obviously, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think there's there's probably always been some aspect of this culture to some extent. Yes. Um, president is one man. Uh, you know, they, they only... You don't have the those that many people around and that caliber of a, a group of people around if you don't want them to make decisions. And at some point, they probably do overstep their bounds in just about any administration. Absolutely. And I, I, this is probably taking it to the umpteenth level just because we have so many internal reports and leaks coming out of 
you know, this administration and what has happened over the past year and a half, two years, um, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's scary to think that the fundamental aspects of the executive branch are, they seem to be moving away from a central figure who is sure. supposed to be the head of that into this amorphous kind of cell-like deep state. Deep state. state. It's the deep state. (laughs) We did it, guys. We We found it. (laughs) We shouldn't pretend that this is the first time this has happened because you could think about Woodrow Wilson had his stroke and his wife was basically running the government. Ronald Reagan, Reagan, in the end, uh, you know, it was his advisors that were running it. The difference here, though, is that Trump is supposedly of sound mind. There wasn't some... Well, I mean, there, there was some... He took some... the test. Yeah. He knew what a giraffe was. <laughs> that's, that's so good. <laughs> the other thing I find myself thinking about is what's going to happen 25 years down the road when people are going to ask us who are alive during this moment, how how did you let this happen? How did this happen? Why didn't you intervene? You know, what what were people thinking at the because time? Because the Democrats were so <laughs> annoying. Right. You have no idea. <laughs> Oof. But, but would we can we can't claim with 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 the Woodward book, and I think he lends a credibility that Amorosa and all the other books don't have that we didn't know. This book now yeah. says we know he probably shouldn't be president. He doesn't he doesn't know what's going on. Everybody around his around him is covering for him. Something yeah. should be done if it's everybody. If it is literally everybody that's covering for him, yeah. you need to get up and leave and say that because right now you're not doing any favors for anyone. Right. If there is a a mass exodus from that administration, that raises red flags. Yeah. Right now, yeah. you have this secretive cabal within the organization that seems to be running things, and you're just kind of letting things happen yeah. under yeah. your watch, quote unquote. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, we, we should talk about the, the, the op-ed, I guess, maybe yeah. a little more directly, but that there's, I mean, this is like the, the, you know, smoking gun analogy that I go back to. There is more than enough evidence to show that he's, he's, I think, not fit to be, to be president. That doesn't mean that that's different from saying that his policies, you know, you could elect a leader who has basically Trumpian policies, but who is carrying them out in a, you know, in, in a sound mind sort of way. I think there is enough evidence that we should be concerned, which is what the op-ed says, right? So all of this other stuff is brought out by this op-ed in which the person is saying, not just, not just that he's he's worrisome, but that they are the discussions have actually happened about, you know, instituting the 25th Amendment, and declaring him, um, you know, incompetent or unable to to uh, to to govern. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Who bears the greatest responsibility within the administration? Is it Pence? Who, you know, when you think about history judging him, there's nobody who's slurping up to Trump more than Pence, right? right? Pence is always the first guy to come out and say, he's of sound mind. He's a good man. I mean, I, I, you know, Mattis I, ignores all those questions. Right. Uh, he'll come to the president's defense. But but does Pence bear a unique responsibility as vice president to be it, truth to power here? Yes, but I also want to like. I think of this is going to be a nerd moment. Michael Walzer, <laughs> I teach, <laughs> I teach a class on ethics and war, and I, Michael Walzer, I know you've read that book, mm-hmm. Bill, that gets into ethics and war. At one point in that book, he talks about when you're talking about, uh, you know, who's who's responsible for some war crime that occurs. He talks about how a, like accountability 
can be distributed without being divided. Oh, right? that so is super dirty, Barker. That, I know, <laughs> I know. But it, I mean, that whole, what that means is you could, yes, Mike Pence holds blame, but you don't have to say that Mike Pence holds blame and so other people are off the hook. Right. Every goddamn one of the people in that administration are on the hook for what's happening, I think. And I think that this whole idea of, you know, there there is an argument to, that is out there that says that you don't want, and we've talked about this, you don't want the, you know, the adults in the room to all resign, right? You don't want them to all resign because they are providing some form of a check on, on Trump. That can be true. One, two, three, six people resigning would make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean that all the adults in the room leave. It is not an all or nothing proposition. It's not that all the adults in the room leave or they all stay. If some people, if a handful of people, prominent people who are recognized as adults in the room, stood up and said what that op-ed said and put their name on it and quit their job, you have three, four people do that, that's going to make a difference. Maybe not with Trump's base, but amongst Republicans in Congress, amongst other you know, moderates, it, I, that would make a difference. And I think... You know, that's fine. They can all get in the room and a room together and figure out, hey, there's 12 of us, which six are going to resign and which six are going to stay here and do the dirty job of making sure we don't nuke North Korea. But but that's, you know, you, you've got to do it at some point. I agree with that. I think it's it's one thing. I was glad that whoever wrote that op-ed wrote it. It was important to be out there. I'm glad Woodward wrote his book. But I think about those that have left the administration, Porter, Priebus, uh, all the other guys, uh, I'm trying to think, Mac uh, McMaster, all of them no longer are with the administration. They could do this. They are suddenly free where they could say these things like, hey, he's not mentally fit. He's not making sound decisions. And they don't either. So there, I think there are those within the administration and those outside who could stand up and say, this is a constitutional crisis. There needs to be an intervention. And nobody other than Amarosa said right. this. Mm -hmm. Right. You know. I mean, the other alternative is if... If there are that many people, again, within the administration mm -hmm. that are doing this, I, leaving would be the first choice. You can also come out as a group and say he is completely unfit for office. Yes. Right now, we need to separate him from the levers of power, and we will continue to work within this this quote-unquote administration, but you need to start proceedings to get him out of office. Absolutely. I, like, I, it, Right. Again, they're not doing anything. You can talk about this all you want and say that there's a resistance. It's just you're not doing anything to help the situation. And, and that's a really good point, Nick, because the fact that they don't do that lends credibility or, or uh, undermines some of what Woodward and others are doing. Because when Mattis and Pence and, and Kelly come out and say, like, no, he's he's fine, it makes me think if these individuals around the president are defending it, well, maybe it's just that Trump is eclectic and a little odd. He's not unfit to be president. So I, I do think there's a there's a unique responsibility on those individuals to speak truth to power. And maybe they are. But there's a lot of other evidence suggesting that they're not. Mm -hmm. and, and it needs to be pointed. It needs yes. to not be, uh, boy, he's, yeah, like you were saying, he's eccentric or, yeah. he, you know, right. he's weird. It needs to be uh, it needs to be a statement that says he is not fit to be president. You have to be that direct. Yes. Yep. That's where we're at. That's a good point to transition to beer, Nick. Hell yeah. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to talk about on this topic, Phil? So much. But yeah, we can move on. <laughs> what, are you, uh, what are you drinking, Phil? Uh, my first beer in honor of my recent trip was a Hofbrauhaus uh, Oktoberfest beer. Oh, that's all, that's all one word. Oktoberfest beer. <laughs> Um, 
and it was uh, I drank it very quickly. It was very good. Um, you know, I, th- there are times where just like a really good kind of lagery, like light sort of beer is just delicious. And that was it was. It was that. It was good. I could drink. I could drink a lot of those. They, they it falls pretty close to the the lawnmower type type beer. When yeah. you get lathered up on a topic, you drink a way faster. Oh, I do. Feels <laughs> bad as hell, and he's not going to take it <laughs> yes. anymore. And so, I also just cracked open uh, uh, my second one that I started is a from the Rogue Rogue Brewery, which is in. I should look. Rogue's I should have good. looked this up in advance. Do you know where it is? No, I should know. I assumed it was northeast, <laughs> no, but. It's delicious. Uh, Oregon. <clears throat> oh, that's way anyway, I was going to say yeah. Oregon. Yeah. Uh, they're Honey Kolsch. Um, Kolsch-style ale brewed with Rogue Farms Hopyard Honey. Um, and I've only had a couple of sips of it, and it's also, it's it's nice. It's a pretty interesting. They're both light beers, but in contrast to the Oktoberfest, you can taste kind of the sweetness and the, the honey in the Kolsch. It's, um, yeah, I will try to drink it slower. And I will point out that Phil is drinking out of a red Solo cup again today. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, Nick, what are we having? Uh, we are also kind of in the same vein. We are having a uh, an Oktoberfest from Great Lakes Brewing from that far off land of Cleveland, Ohio. I love it, Cleveland. <laughs> we haven't had many Cleveland beers. This is great. No, it's good. Yeah, I I'm really not ready for it to get cold and yeah. shitty around here, but I do love a good Oktoberfest oh. beer, and this is this is a damn good one. Um, yeah, it has that kind of. Just slightly heavier thing to it, but it's um I don't know. It just feels like fall. It feels like autumn. I, I love the the picture on the bottle. It's like these, you know, beer glasses, mugs clinking together. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it is a fall taste. It's it's uber smooth. Mm-hmm. It's uber smooth. <laughs> it, it, it has that maltiness to it, but mm-hmm. not too heavy. Yeah. Uh, it's a good transition between it, summer and fall. Exactly. Not all Oktoberfests are well done, but this one by Great Lakes is really, really good. I'm I'm absolutely enjoying it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. If uh, you want to check out the beers that we try on the podcast, download the... Why, oh, geez. Uh, the Untapped app. Uh, on iOS and Android, wow, that was going to be bad. Um, iOS and Android, we are Barstool Politics on there, so check out our uh, reviews and things that we check in. Super fun. Speed round. Speed round. Let's do it. So, topic number one, a new low or just politics as usual? The hearings for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh finished last week. It will be a couple weeks before we get to a formal Senate vote, which will likely affirm his seat on the Supreme Court. The hearings themselves were a spectacle that exposed the extreme partisan divisions within the country. Last week, Tom expressed deep concern about the way the Democrats approached the hearings. Looking back, what do we take away from these hearings? Do they represent a new low in American politics, or were they just the continuation of a winner-take-all system that has no rooms for civility? Phil, you always leave leave room for civility. Screw you! (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you start us off? (laughs) So, I, I I did not strap I in, looked, folks. <laughs> I was in uh, I I was in Germany um, doing other things last week, so I, I haven't had a chance to listen to what Tom said. But I am going to heartily disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I love Tom; he's a wonderful person. I enjoy talking with him, but I'm going to disagree. I mean, I think so. Yeah, the, some of the stuff that happened this week, some of the stuff that the uh, the that the Democrats did was different, right? Like they took a more aggressive stance in the the hearings, um, Booker and Harris and others. Um, but I I think. I, I want to come back to the fact that you can't separate that from context. If this were a normal hearing, if we went back, you know, 10 years and, and this were happening in a random 
you know, nomination, we would say this is problematic. But you can't separate that from the 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 Garland nomination and the ways in which Republicans just even refuse to hear uh, to even to hear um, uh, his nomination. You can't separate that from the fact that there is a significant amount of documentation that has not been released mm-hmm. about Kavanaugh, um, about stuff that he has done, written about the presidency and about you know legal decisions. You can't separate that from the fact that he I mean, I, I don't want to harp on the whole he lied under oath thing, um, but there he was a little less than honest, mm-hmm. which all nominees are, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of evade. But, right. you know, this is not I don't I, I think that if in the context of what is happening, I don't think that what the Democrats are doing is unusual at all. I think it makes a lot of sense to be pissed off about the fact that Republicans are kind of rushing this. That there, that that a significant amount of the documentation hasn't been released. I mean, the the idea, the old game is it. You know, are they playing? How did you say it? A winner take all system. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, they are playing in a in the in the methodology of a winner take all system. But Democrats didn't create that system. So I, I you know, I don't. I yeah, I don't. Um, I I have a hard time, uh, getting you know all. A flutter about what Cory Booker did last. Week. I think. I think. Yeah, what he did last week is pretty minor in 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 the context of what all is happening in politics. Sure. Nick, God, um, I mean, I you know we talked about it last week. I was generally uh, Tom and I were were pretty aligned on this. Um, while I I don't necessarily think in this particular context the Democrats did anything super out of the ordinary for what the climate is right now. What I do think is odd about the whole thing is that the the methodology that they used to kind of get their point across was very scattered and kind of diffused and had a lot of kind of personal intention behind it. Cory Booker looked like he was campaigning. Oh, yeah. The whole document thing wasn't even agreed upon by the, the Democratic caucus. They didn't know if that was a, a, a worthwhile thing to pursue. It just, they were grasping at things. Mm-hmm. And like I understand that Kavanaugh was, you know, evasive to some extent. I, I'll debate yeah. to what degree. Um but I, it, I, I don't know. They, they just, they didn't seem to have a good cohesive strategy that was, if they are playing a winner-take-all game, they didn't have a, a, a team working together sure. to get their point across. And realistically, if you are that mad about this, then you need to have a united sure. front on this particular issue. This is a big deal. If, they're, if you think they're trying to push this through before a midterm election and you know, you can't really do anything about it. Make some sort of statement. Sure. I, 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 I don't know. It, it just, yeah, it seemed weird to me. I guess I, I would say I've, I've come to the position that I think uh, Kavanaugh is, is qualified. I think he's legitimate. Uh, I think there's a way in which he's been portrayed as more extremist than he really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's part of me that thinks that even if you were able to <laughs> derail his, his candidacy, let's say that would happen, what you would get would be more extreme. I think right. it, they wouldn't go to the center uh, he it would be it'd be more extreme than Kavanaugh. No, Phil, you disagree. <laughs> I, if you look at, at people who study Supreme yeah. Court justices and judges and partisanship of justice judges, not partisanship, but uh, yeah. alignment, sure. like where they fall on the spectrum. 
Kavanaugh is really damn conservative. Like he's out there. He will be the the no, or one Gor- of them. He's not Gorsuch. Most of them don't show him. Like Gorsuch no, is out there. I he's beyond Gorsuch in terms of conservative. Your data is suspect, Parker. <laughs> that is factually <laughs> inaccurate, Phil. There there are a bunch of them out of there. I've seen some that have him inside of Gorsuch, inside of Thomas. Um, but either way, you're right. He's he's certainly going to be much further right than Kennedy. There's no doubt about that. But here's you know, here's my point. Democrats can't complain about this because they don't win elections, right? I mean, the, the Republicans have a right to nominate him. He is a legitimate nominee. And I may disagree philosophically with his approach to the law mm-hmm. and be concerned about the political outcomes that are going to uh, develop because of his seat on the Supreme Court. I, I, I'm not going to attack the right to nominate him. I think he's a legitimate nominee. I, so yeah, I, I mean this is this is part of a bigger problem of the of the politicization of mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, right? I mean, it, judges are gonna have you know more conservative or more liberal ideas, but but it has become about what they how they view politics, yes. and that's deter, that's what determines their ability to get nominated to the court. Not are they good justices? Do they consider things? You know, I, right. I there are lots. Of, this is you know, I this is the stupid comparativist in me. There are lots of systems out there that make way more sense to me, in which judges, for instance, nominate uh, Supreme Court justices as opposed to politicians. Um, so yeah, I mean the the Republicans. One and they have a right to do this to some extent, but that doesn't mean that they should sure. do it, right? <laughs> sure. And it's one of those things where I step back and I think about if you take all the partisan labels off of it, if you forget whose party you support and whether as a result you want Kavanaugh confirmed or not, and you think about what's a system that works, how should we have a system that works? A system in which the people confirming this justice have access to all of the documents about him is a system you want, right? right? Regardless of it's again, it's one of those things where it's a short sighted. It makes sense for Republicans to limit access to stuff that might damage his nomination. Maybe he's you know, he may be thoroughly qualified, but more conservative than, you know, in in ways that might be controversial. But someday it's going to be switched, right? We don't right. want to create a system in which the things that are unpopular are hidden, right? We want we want a confirmation process in which you can look at everything about a justice and decide whether that or not they're qualified to be a member of the Supreme Court. So it's one of those where I get why the Republicans are doing it. I get why the Democrats are fighting back. The whole damn thing is just screwed up, yeah. right? It's just dumb that this has become the way it's done. I'd concur with that. And I, to, to go back to, and I know we got to wrap up at a point Nick made. This was for Cory Booker. This was about the presidency, right? I mean, this, or not even that. This was about the midterms. This is about a rallying the base. I mean, so in some ways, as I said last week, this wasn't about Kavanaugh. This no. was about politics, right? And that's just where we're at. No, so that it, needs to be stripped from yeah, the system. It is. It's and it's. It's all ugly. I mean, Merrick Garland for Democrats is still so present, and Republicans can't understand Who? that. Who? Uh, he was the guy that was supposed to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> I it, forgot wait, about it. Yeah, he's, little... <laughs> he's not. He's not on the Supreme Court. No, oh. no, no. He was. He was. Oh. He was busy. How did you so. get confused? How did, how did that happen? Yeah, I don't I, know. Republicans. I think he got <laughs> sick. <laughs> all right, moving on. <laughs> yes. All right. Topic number two. Obama's back. Oh, I'm so excited. Former President Barack Obama <laughs> reappeared last week on the campaign trail to campaign for Democrats in California and Ohio. Obama has largely avoided campaign activity since leaving office, but he didn't hold any punches in two speeches last week. It was a full-throated rebuke of Trump and his presidency. 
Trump responded to Obama's attack by noting, I watched it, but fell asleep. I found he's very good for sleeping. (laughs) Good burn, Mr. Trump. President Trump. Yes. Obama's return to the campaign trail raises some interesting questions. Is this a good tactic for Democrats? Obama is incredibly popular among Democrats. It is also a wonderful target for Republicans. Gentlemen, is Obama bringing sexy back? Or is this going to blow up in their faces? Uh... <laughs> Go. <laughs> Phil, what do you think? Obama bringing sexy back? Um, I, I mean, I think so from a purely strategic standpoint, I don't... I, I don't think this is a bad thing for yeah. for Democrats at this point. I think uh, um, there is a point in time where Obama would have been divisive enough that it would have pushed people away. I think there's a <laughs> there's a fondness for Obama looking back, even amongst I've seen a number of conservatives who yes. have basically talked about I disagreed with everything Obama said, but good lord, at least the man was intelligent and thought through things, right? And so. Um, I, I don't know that he's a, as big of a, a, you know, an anchor around the Democratic Party as as other people might think. I I would love to see rather than Obama, somebody else yes, taking correct. the the lead here. Right. That the, the Democratic Party, you know, that someone else kind of fills those shoes and starts to put. I mean, we're getting close to that right after the midterms. You're going to start the presidential um, campaign season. Um and so we'll we'll see a little bit of that. So I, I would like to see some other leadership step forward. But when there's a Republican president and the Democrats don't control a damn thing in, in D.C., um, it's hard to find, you know, a face for the for the Democratic Party. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I, I, I think that uh, he's been reluctant to do this. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it's all that bad of a thing that he's speaking out either. Former presidents have in some ways stayed quiet in the past, but not always, right? Jimmy Carter had all sorts of stuff to say about George Bush. There were law, you know, Ike had all sorts of stuff to say. I mean, there were about JFK. There are lots of presidents who have spoken about, out about their successor. So, um, I don't necessarily have a problem with it, as far as whether it's going to be effective or not, I think the Democratic Party needs a face right now. Um, I think that's in the absence of that, like obvious next person. Obama's not a bad choice, but yeah, I look forward to the next generation kind of coming in and taking over in that role. I I agree with that. Uh, to me, uh, I think he was the last kind of cohesive figure that the Democratic Party had, and I, yeah. it's I it, to me it looks mildly desperate <laughs> to be honest um i i think they know that he's good at rallying people and he represents something that is completely absent from the democratic party right now it's been it's been years at this point since since his administration and they should have had some kind of succession plan i i mean i think they had all their 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 eggs in the hillary basket and then after that blew up in their face they go, we don't know what the hell to do and nobody they've just it's this infighting thing which again kind of came out in the the kavanaugh hearings but um i yeah it's there needs to be some sort of shift into a new generation of people that can take the reins of the party and push it I, I would hope not farther left, but push it in a direction that they think is more effective for their platform. Um, yeah, Obama himself. It, wait, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll let you finish. I'll, um, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, 
yeah, it, it's I, I don't know whether it'll be effective or not. I, I don't really know. Like I said, to me, it comes off as being relatively desperate for them to find some sort of message that everybody can rally around. I think if you use him strategically and, and it's not surprising that they put him in California. Because there are a number of Republican House seats in Republic in, in California that they want to take back, and I think you can do that. The contrast between Obama and Trump is startling. Obama yeah. gives speeches, is thoughtful, is eloquent, is you know, he can understand multiple issues and speak deeply about all of them. And I think it works not only to mobilize the Democratic base, but to moderates and maybe even some some conservatives, they may look at this and then suddenly realize how bad Trump is, right? So so if you're deploying Obama, I think you, you want him to be attacking Trump, but not to be overly political. So don't hit those, you know, like deep, hardcore, bread and butter progressive issues, but maybe be the guy who draws the contrast and talk about how bad Trump is. I don't know how they're going to use him, but I, I could see him being being effective if, the, if he's used in a not not overly partisan way. Mm. I, I think the other thing to keep in mind with with Obama is that while he is the sort of symbol of the Democratic Party, he's also a person. So like beyond the, what? it's easy to think of him as a as a you know as like a Democratic operative. But if I'm Barack Obama sitting around watching what the hell's going on, like at some point he's gonna want to. I don't I don't want to take too much away from. The fact that maybe he's just concerned about stuff that sure. he wants to say, hey, <laughs> right. guys, this is not normal. Right? <laughs> right. That That is not necessarily intention to get Democrats elected. I mean, I think that plays into it. But I think there's also at some point he's just a person who's who's saying like this is this is screwed up. Like this is not normal. Yeah. Like you have to go vote because this is not. And so I, it's easy to just view him as a tool of the Democratic Party. And, and I don't. I'm not trying to say that that's not what is happening, but there's also an element of just, you know, he, he like other people, is concerned about what's happening. I, I think that would be true if he was, it's been two years at this point, and there have been plenty of red flags between now and then. If you were that concerned, and I'm sure he was concerned, if it was just about being concerned for the office itself and democratic institutions, like you would have been talking about this, not necessarily not, you know, in a campaign rally immediately but, prior to the midterm elections. Like, and I he probably is concerned. I have no doubt about that. But then just talk to people outside of those venues where yeah. I, I, I. But it's I, hard for him to do that outside of the campaign. Right. Then you the shouldn't do it. <laughs> Then you well, shouldn't no, do it. But president president should involved. be on permanent vacation. No, presidents can get involved. Go build in a campaign. house like Jimmy Carter. <laughs> they can be involved in campaigns, but they are generally respectful of the president otherwise. And so, and and again, Obama is a rule follower. So I, I think that explains I, part of the fact that he was why he's so removed. I, I think this is an example where Obama can't win, right? Yeah, if sure. he had come out two weeks after the election and said Trump is crazy. You people would have ripped him apart for not staying out of politics, but Correct. he has stayed out of it for two years. And people, and then you know, you you want to criticize him for why didn't he say something sooner? And so I, he's in a he's in a difficult position. I mean, like there, 
after after the Trump election and when he there were pictures of him out, you know, windsurfing and stuff, people were critical of that. So it's like he can't win. Right. He either he's either saying too much or he's not saying enough. And that would I don't know. It's not a bad position because he's like super rich and he's out windsurfing. So I don't feel sorry for him. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, I kind of think no matter what he did. If he had spoken out early, if he had waited even any longer, if he had waited until, you know, the next presidential election, people are going to have an issue with it. So I don't know. I think they should all just thanks thanks Obama. (laughs) Thanks Obama for giving us Obama. (laughs) I think every president should just fade in in (laughs) into the background. They should have a big brother style reality TV show where all former presidents go live together on TV 24 hours a day and they don't have anything to say. We just get to watch them fight each other and get along oh i thought you was gonna be like thunderdome but yeah that's good too well that would work we could do that (laughs) you can't put bill clinton in that environment it's it's not it's not acceptable (laughs) safest environment for bill clinton (laughs) that's true all right moving on to international topics north korea north korea held a national celebration over the weekend marking its 70th anniversary of its founding it attracted the attention attention because kim jong-un did not include any nuclear related missiles or hardware in the parade this is more than a little nuclearization. Shock- <laughs> That's right. Success. <laughs> this is more than a little shocking because the uh, the nuclear missiles are generally the highlight of any good North Korean parade. Pres- showstopper. Any, any parade, really? Any parade. That's right. Yeah, I, I, you got enjoy. <laughs> they just that. irradiated the flowers. Right. So it's close. <laughs> I will say it was. It's. It's. They're always beautiful. Uh, <laughs> President Trump responded positively to this de- uh, development, noting, "This is a big and very positive statement from North Korea." Thank you to Chairman Kim. We will both prove everyone wrong. There is nothing like good dialogue from two people that like each other. XOXO. <laughs> I, mean, I, XO. I just can't. He's just, I just can't. All right. In a nod to China, the celebration also included a performance of the popular Chinese folk song, Love to China. Phil, what's North Korea up to? Are these positive developments? <laughs> No, this is the same story that we've talked about over and mm. over again, which is that North Korea pays some sort of lip service to they 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 are playing Donald Trump incredibly well. Right. So you I, I the the exclusion of nuclear weapons. I I don't know what to make of that, but it seems like a really smart. Yeah. Kind of PR move. They're for, good at this game. For, yeah. Nothing's changing. They're not going to get rid of their nuclear weapons. They're not going to they're not going to become suddenly, you know, they're not going to suddenly embrace free trade and human rights like the, No, nothing's changing. They're playing Donald Trump. And he the, the fact that in the midst of all of this, the Woodward book and all of the other, you know, allegations that have come up, the op ed that he tweeted out some statement from Kim about how how he had uh, how Kim had utmost, you know, the utmost faith in Trump. That, I mean, that that should tell you enough in and of itself about the state of where things are. That's a short answer, but the answer is no. Nothing's <laughs> no. Nick, is it getting better? Um, what do you mean by better? <laughs> no. I, I, um, so the, the other part of this is uh, Kim Jong-un did send a letter to Trump saying that he did want another yes. meeting similar to their original yes. summit. So there is a chance for future dialogue that could turn into something, considering that the first attempt at dialogue turned into nothing um, is a little disconcerting and probably doesn't give, doesn't give me a lot of hope for what could happen later. But um, 
I, I'm, I'm still on the bandwagon that something could potentially change. Dialogue leads to interconnectivity, leads to economic development, leads to, you know, democratic uprising, le- leads to a, a change in regimes. Um, it's, I, I, it's still better than the narrative that was occurring a year ago, That's true. I think. No yeah. nuclear missiles in a parade is better than nuclear missiles yes, than threatening the Even testing. Even if they all just those... put them under a tarp like the next <laughs> block over, it's all, still different. All of those things are a good development. Mm-hmm. That being said, what North Korea, I, I think I agree with you, Phil, is doing is they're playing the United States and they're playing China. They're they're doing things that both countries will like. Apparently, in the parade, uh, they were Kim Jong Un was holding hands with some high ranking Chinese diplomat. I mean, they're doing everything that they should do to build rapport with these two countries. Are they going to denuclearize? No, I, I don't see any any desire to do that. But maybe it de-escalates the tension, and so we get to a better position yeah. because of that. Well, I mean, what's what's the alternative? Like either, like they're not supervillains. As much as we like to think of them as right. the world's supervillain, you don't develop relationships between the two superpowers in the world. And then mm-hmm. things settle down, and then you attack both of them. That doesn't make any sense. Right, so the right. only thing that they could do is improve their standing on the world stage, create economic development, and that brings them into the system, whether inadvertently or not. That I, it, I, I, I don't know. Like I still don't see this as a negative. Sure. Yeah. Do you do you have concerns over another meeting? Does that worry you at all? It doesn't worry me. It's pointless, right? I mean, I guess I would say, why do that? If you're the United States, the first meeting didn't translate into anything. The second meeting, to Nick's point, isn't going to translate into anything. Uh, maybe, it, I don't know, I guess if it de-escalates tensions, that's valuable. For me, what really, really upsets me is in Trump's tweet when he says, there is nothing like good dialogue from two people that like each other. That just pissed me off, right? I mean, this yeah. is... This is still Kim Jong-un, who kills people regularly, assassinates people, is running a totalitarian who, regime. Who and, last year was threatening to nuke the west coast of the United States. Ah, right. He's just being and, funny. And, <laughs> Give him a break. And suddenly Trump is saying, we're, we like each other, while he's saying, like, Canada's a bunch of scumbags who, you know, they're taking advantage of his trade, right? The up is down, black is white, Nick. It doesn't make any sense to me anymore. <laughs> like, we hate Canada, but Kim Jong-un is a good guy. That That's the thing, right? I think this feeds back into our earlier topic where Trump doesn't know what he's well, talking about. You lose about. one, you gain one. It's pretty much a net. It's, it's, I, I it want, just cancels out. I, it's want fine. Ca- I want Canada. Nah, it's fine. We don't need Canada. Poutine is really good. Yeah, but it's I don't gravy know. And Korean cheese. food is yeah. delicious. Sorry, Phil, you were going to say something thoughtful. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. No, I mean, I think when I think about the, the, the meeting, I agree with you. Nothing's going to come of it. But I'm at the point where I kind of think, why not? North Korea has Donald Trump figured out. They're going to stroke his ego. They're going to make him feel good about things. That's going to make Donald Trump less likely to go on some Twitter rant about nuking them. I don't think anything real is going to emerge from it in terms of certainly not in terms of North Korea, but I don't think anything particularly real is going to emerge. We know that the people around Trump are going to sabotage anything that that might be dangerous. It Mm. seems like, hey, let let these two people who are busy yelling at each other a year ago. Let them, you know, hang out and make each other feel important if that if that works. Well, I mean, he's a great foil, especially in the context of people running an administration that, you know, it's not the head of state. I mean, the uh, the Kim regime is the the epitome of that type of system of governance. It's it's the military and generals and people who have been in power for 
the better part of 70 years at this point who are actually running the show. And he's a kid that likes sports cars and, you know, Western music and the Bulls. Right. And <laughs> so it's just like the U.S. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> the, right. the leader's a figurehead it's and perfect. all the people around yeah. him That's are running they, things. They like each other. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. I don't want to think about that anymore, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> All right. National Security Advisor John Bolton made news on Monday when he delivered a fiery speech against the International Criminal Court, or ICC. I'm guessing most of our listeners don't spend much time thinking about the International Criminal Court. The court began operations in 2002 with the goal of being an international legal mechanism for addressing the most egregious cases of human rights violations, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. The U.S. initially signed the Rome Statute, creating the court, but did not ratify the agreement, meaning the U.S. never became an official member of the court. Bolton is all lathered up about the ICC again because an ICC judge is expected to soon announce a decision on a request from prosecutors to formally open investigation into allegations of war crimes committed in Afghanistan since 2003, an investigation that could include U.S. personnel. Bolton stated that we would use any means necessary to protect American citizens from an unjust prosecution of this by this illegitimate court, and that for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. Dead to us, Nick. Yes. I tend to find these attacks on the ICC to be a whole lot of nothing. The court is not a real threat to the United States, but it does speak to the degree to which the U.S. is support of global efforts to confront human rights violations. Phil, you once filled in as a judge on the ICC. What's, what's your take on all of this? Every third Tuesday of the month. <laughs> I, th- I mean, this is like, to me, this is like a flashback to like 15 years it's ago. exactly true, yes. Yeah. John Bolton railing against the ICC. Is, it just feels, it almost feels like, yeah, we're back in like 2003 or something. <laughs> yes. um, I mean... There's a lot to say about this. The, the U.S. has long... There's nothing new about this. The right. U.S. has long opposed the ICC. So we signed the Rome Statute, but we signed the Rome Statute only so that we could be involved in the further negotiations. We never had any intention yeah. of actually being involved in the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. And that's bipartisan. Um, both Democrats and Republicans have correct. both been very clear that they do not want to become a party to this. Mm-hmm. We have passed numerous laws that make it clear that American officials... I mean, we, we signed bilateral treaties with countries that require them to promise never to refer an American to the ICC. We have the invade the Hague provision, <laughs> yes, right? Like this yes. idea that if an American is ever detained by the ICC, we uh, like are pre-authorized to invade the Netherlands <laughs> to go get them back. That's insane. That would be fun. The Netherlands the, is delightful. You wouldn't want to invade there. <laughs> the amount of um, the amount of opposition to the ICC seems bizarre to me. I mean, the ICC is set up. The International Criminal Court is set up to prosecute crimes that are essentially unable to be prosecuted by other countries. It's to deal with the Rwandas and the Yugoslavias of the world. Um, as long as the, the U.S. opposition to it is, it's kind of weirdly telling the extent to which that we are terrified that other people in the world will hold us accountable for the shit we do around the world. And I, I think that's, in my mind, the, the I mean, I, I get the, the concern that there would be political motiva- motivations, that other countries would be upset about the U.S. and they would take it out on U.S. troops. But um, 
you know, there are all sorts of protections in place to prevent that from happening. And this just reveals to me the, uh, the, the underlying sentiment is we want to be able to do what we want without having to actually pay any price if we do it in a really bad way. Well, one of those protections, maybe the most important protection, is the idea of complementarity, which means the ICC only gets involved if the state is unwilling or unable to prosecute crimes. Mm -hmm. And to the U.S.'s credit, we are very good about if we engage in war crimes, crimes against humanity, or individuals do this, we look into it. I mean, there's a military code of justice for a reason, and we hold our own soldiers accountable for this. So, you know, I've always argued to my classes that the United States has nothing to worry about with the ICC. And in many ways, as you guys both said, this is a foil. Um, well, I, I mean, I, that's that kind of that's a good point in yeah. itself. I, I I think there is a system in place where we do look into cases of, of you know domestic well yeah uh, domestic personnel who are involved in situations like this or or cases like this. Um, to me, it seems like if there is a judge who is considering this, it seems like grandstanding more just than investigation anything. not prosecution just no i look into it. i yeah. agree yeah, yeah. It, it, but at the same time where are you in ukraine or burma or southeast asia in general like there are so many things that the icc that was created to look into that they refuse to look into or haven't had the ability to look into and you're right that the fact that bolton is this worked up about it is ridiculous they can't do anything right. realistically the and i i've done extensive research on the ICC and it's it's useless it doesn't do anything it, it's prosecuted a handful of people successfully since its inception um, and even then it was again because the countries were completely incapable of doing anything right. about it um, I, I just I, I can see why he's angry about it and why a domestic audience would be angry about it but at the same time just like sit there and say, go fuck yourself. Like, just let, let them do whatever they want. Nothing is going to come of this. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Again, I think it's grandstanding more yeah. than anything. And the investigation I mean, is looking into both the Afghani government and their activities, Al Qaeda, the Haqqani network, and then also potential some United States activities. Well, I mean, I, the, this is where I think that we're not, we're not, our hands aren't clean, right? I mean, no. if you look at the the war in Afghanistan, there have been cases of crimes that have occurred. That's not in dispute. The U.S. has prosecuted soldiers who have carried out illegal activities. We've charged people with murder. We've accused them of violations of the uniform, you know, right. of the military code of conduct. So it's not, you know, the idea that that we've done something wrong isn't. You know, it, this is not a, a condemnation of the United States as a whole. It's to say that there are certain things, certain crimes that were committed. And, you know, I don't know the the sort of, you know, the, the overt ob- objection that how dare you suggest that we've done anything wrong is, you know, that that seems. Yeah, like it seems weird. I mean, yeah. we've 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 we have soldiers who have done stuff wrong. We've held them accountable. And I, yeah, I the the. It is it is very much this kind of globalism, the world, the UN is out to get us. I, I think it's very very much politically motivated. I, I yeah, I I tend to agree with I, I just think there's so many other cases that they could be focusing on and this just I realistically I don't even know if this was a, a, a big deal with the ICC in general. It just like you, you look at something like Syria and and but Afghanistan's w- pretty messed up. Oh, right? it is absolutely. But th- I mean, it's not like you're 
you know, we're here murdering our own citizens in droves and driving them into other countries. You look at something like Syria, where the regime has just cleansed entire sections of, of their population and completely changed the demographic makeup of you know, three different regions of the world that surrounds it. And nothing is being done about it from a international sure. judicial standpoint. I would love to see the Taliban be held accountable by the ICC. Yeah, though, right? but I mean, they're, that, again, they're the perfect example of people that are going to go, go fuck yourself. Well, you can, it doesn't matter. You can get the Taliban, Nick. You can get them. You can get them? <laughs> so, they hey, control hey half the country at this point. <laughs> what percentage of our listeners do you think shut the podcast down when we start talking about the ICC? Okay. Oh, God. Right, bonus, points, bonus points to anybody who's still listening. <laughs> that's right. One other quick anecdote about John Bolton. So you know, I was reading the, the, the book. Walrus. Uh, the Walrus. Yeah, that's right. The Wood book this morning and they talk about after michael flynn left as nat oh, was forced out by as national security advisor bolton was one of the initial candidates and also mcmaster and somebody else and it literally is true that the reason trump didn't like bolton was the mustache woodward okay. says that you know there he just didn't think he looked the part uh, whereas McMaster came for a second interview and wore in his military uniform, mm. and Trump said, "That's it, that guy." <laughs> Trump He's... loves him some generals. Yes, looks um, <laughs> great. Hey, what really happened sharp. to Mike Flynn? He's he's Who? guilty. He's guilty. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, he's <laughs> in jail. Yes. Well, not jail yet, but he's he's going to be sentenced soon. Oh, so, uh... all right, final topic, Nick. They microwaved our diplomats. I love this one. All right. Remember a while back when all those U.S. diplomats were having hearing problems in Cuba? Well, doctors and scientists say such microwave weapons may have been may have caused the baffling symptoms and ailments that started in late 2016 and hit more than three dozen American diplomats and family members in Cuba and and China. The Cuban incidents resulted in a diplomatic rupture between Havana and Washington. The medical team that examined 21 affected diplomats from Cuba made no mention of microwaves in its detailed report. Uh, but Douglas Smith, the study's lead author and director, uh, said in a recent interview that microwaves were now considered a main suspect and that team, the team was increasingly sure that diplomats had suffered brain injury. That's terrible. That's like Putin bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Reaction. Nick, you said this was... you were. <laughs> I just love you, this yeah. stuff, this covert espionage Covert stuff. microwaving. Yeah. yeah. So the the story says that um, there was a team of scientists who I think were U.S.-based, I can't remember specifically, that went over to Russia during the Cold War. Um, and for some reason, they kind of let them in on all of this research about microwave technology and what they could do with it to the point where they could focus a beam and actually... Uh, uh, send an auditory signal into a person's brain and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from but it would also cause brain damage That's it's so terrifying. cool <laughs> <laughs> um, like when you hear uh, it, like I, my initial thought when this came out it, it's got to be Russia like it's not the Cubans doing this they, 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 they're, that's not it's just not them it does reek of Putin of right of course yes. and it's it's just that classic kind of you know, psyops, weird yeah. spy, covert stuff that uh, I don't know. I, I found it really interesting, um, but it's definitely Russia. It's obviously Russia that's doing it. <laughs> Phil, so wait, it's not just a bad microwave. It wasn't like a microwave with a bad seal on no. it in the Cuban embassy. Yeah, despite popular belief, they were not just sticking their heads in the microwave. Oh, yeah. I was so I'm safe. I'm safe at home. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Is was... your microwave talking to you? <laughs> right. <laughs> 
I will say, as I was putting the outline together <laughs> last phonies. night, I was warming up a taco, and part of me thought, like, am I, am I, am I okay here? <laughs> uh, socialism doesn't seem that bad. That's right. They've got microwaves, so I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, it's. Russia is such just a sinister bunch of little fucks. <laughs> just they're and they're so good at it, and and, and they haven't stopped. Like they have not yeah. stopped. If you think that there has been any shift into a more, I, I think at one point after the the Cold War, there was this kind of subtle shift towards a more democratic system of governance in in Russia, and with Putin, it's just slid back into this pseudo socialist USSR, just. So for you, there's Progeny. no. This is this is Putin. It's this Putin. is there's no. I mean, it there's. Has it's to not be. Cuba or China. This is Putin. No, like there's. The, yeah, I, it's. I, I can't imagine it would be anybody else. <laughs> Phil, <laughs> I have no idea. Who, I don't. I am still trying to wrap my head around this idea. <laughs> is this? A, is there a physical gun? Like, is that? Like, how do you aim? Microwave? Yeah. Like, what? I don't know what is happening here. So one of the you can fit it inside. I guess the technology you can fit it inside of a van. And one of the. Um, the U.S. diplomats, uh, his wife, I guess, was there, and she looked out the window, and there was a van that had, like, a radio dish or something and was driving away. Could, whatever. It could have been a, a TV repair guy, for all I know. But, um, yeah, it's I, – I think it, you can just send it through, like, a, a standard – what would look like a satellite dish, and it's hmm. portable and fairly easy to do, but it does oh. cause permanent brain damage. So All the, the best technologies involve vans. Right. Of course. <laughs> now, Nick, when I microwave something at home, I put a little cover over it so it doesn't explode all over the microwave. Yeah. Uh-huh. Does that protect me, that cover, if they're shooting this van yes. at me? You should all wear tinfoil hats <laughs> at this point. That little plastic thing yes. that you put on your – got to cover your face with that. Okay. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to duct tape that to my head. <laughs> yeah. So. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just found it fun. It's, it's nice to talk about, you know – people with permanent it's, brain it's, damage yeah it's, it's, it's a nice it's, uplifting it is, topic <laughs> it, it is a little like I, I joke a lot because if i really stop and think about the sort of military technologies that are top secret that yeah. i don't know about that not just the u.s but other countries around the world have it is it is really disturbing yes i mean if this is something that you know the idea that there's some sort of ray and every now and then there's some story that comes out about some technology that you know that the navy is working on or that some other country is working on that seems insane but you know like again the the extent to which the the crazy things that we're willing to do to kill other people is a little disturbing we're gonna beam messages into your head and nobody else can hear them but you and you're just going to writhe around on the ground because you can't figure out where it's coming so from. Is the effect actually basically to microwave your brain? Like no. To like spin the water molecules around in your brain and I, fry it? I mean, I think that's one application of it. But the, the, ori- the original Russian application was to influence people's thoughts. And it was psychological warfare. You could have a voice inside their head that was telling them something that they had no idea where it was coming from and it's just this bizarre just really sinister th- they're so good at sinister shit i don't know i, I love that stuff my microwave doesn't I, do that the no next time not I, yet the next time i screw up i have a built-in excuse now <laughs> blaming right. it on the microwave, microwave. Mm-hmm. that was a good way to end yeah I think yeah so. um do you want to cover for me? Oh, sure. So uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, follow us on Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Uh, all of our beers are up on the Untapped app. Uh, 
Also, uh, make sure to check out Predict It. It's a wonderful uh, stock market for politics where you can uh, uh, invest in political outcomes. A lot of fun. And uh, follow us on iTunes and tell tell your friends. But can, why would I use Predict It? Can we, I, like, get free money? Free, free money. It? I forgot the free money part, oh. Nick. Tell them about the free money. So if you sign up for a Predict It account and make an initial deposit uh, and use our promo link, uh, if you deposit up to $20, they will match your account uh, with $20. So deposit $20, you will get $20 in free money to use. You have $40 to invest and make or lose whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever so you're inclined to do. Use the promo link predicted.org slash promo slash barstool Paul 20. P-O-L 20. Uh, yeah. And get some free money and check it out because it's a lot of fun. We have we have a lot of fun with it. I'm heavily invested in Don Don Jr. going down man. I am. He, that guy is going down. And if he does, I'm making some serious cash. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, we're, we're good. Anything else, guys? No. Nine. This was episode nine. <laughs> this was episode 90. This is great. That's, That's crazy. crazy. We're getting yeah. there. We're getting there. Close to 100. Uh, yeah, we will see you guys next week then. Cheers. Prost. Shut up and sit down.